All right, if you want to turn to 2 Peter, 2 Peter. If you have one of the uh, <clears throat> bookmarks that we gave out for Christmas, you might just want to leave it there. I think we'll be returning here for a couple of weeks. So, Second uh, Peter, I've had a, a thought for quite a while, and um, I'd start to kind of study it, and then it wasn't right, so I'd stop and can't seem to get away from it. And uh, it kind of led me to this, this first chapter in Second Peter, uh, but then as I got to really investigating, I did what any good um, Bible reading and studying have to do. You've got to read before and after. Stress this multiple times. Hopefully you do the same thing. If you pick out a verse or two that you read, you ought to back up and read a little before, and you need to read a little bit after. And you need to be careful not to just stop with chapters or verses. Chapters and verses are not inspired. They're not wrong. It's the way that we use to categorize the Bible and be able to call out where we're at for people to read along. But it was not written in this way. It wasn't chapter 3, verse you know, 4, etc. It was uh, written as letters and paragraphs and things of that nature. So it's important that we go beyond that. So even reading Second Peter, I went back and ended up reading First Peter because obviously there's first and second written by Peter for a similar reason to a similar group of people. So when you read the Bible, make sure that you go back and read before and you read after. And what ends up happening so often, at least in my life, and hopefully yours as well, is the thought you came to with the scripture you find out maybe was incorrect. Maybe you find out there's more to it than what you thought. Maybe you realize how much bigger it is than what you initially thought. And you end up in a journey, if you will, through the scriptures with the Lord. That's that's the goal. And that's what God will do for you. And so while I started this thought, I was really interested in the concept of virtue. Virtue. What is virtue? How do we get it? Et cetera, et cetera. And there is a scripture here in this first chapter that talks about virtue, but it really led me into more explanation of the first chapter. So what I want to do is read Second uh, Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 1 through around 15. And then what will probably be a couple of Sundays we're going to look through the first half of this chapter. So 2 Peter chapter 1 reads as follows, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given us Unto us all things that pertaineth unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Into virtue, knowledge, into knowledge, temperance, into temperance, patience, into patience, godliness, into godliness, brotherly kindness, into brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off. He hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able, after my uh, uh, decease, to have these things always in remembrance. And I'll end there for at least for now. And so we see here, this is the second um, letter that Peter is writing to a group of people. You can turn back and see that he addresses the opening chapter of First Peter, very similar. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and so on. And so what we see here is that Peter, probably nearing the end of his life, based on some of the context that we just said and some things we know about this, is writing a letter. And he's writing a letter to those who are believers, those who are Christians, as we would call them today. And he's going to give them a series of instructions. And the purpose of this, among other things, is to put us into remembrance of the things that we already know. And so Peter is trying to remind us of the things that we've been told before, probably some of them in this first letter, and also the other things that he and other apostles and disciples have taught us. And I have mentioned this over and over again. It's been a repeated theme for the last few years in my life is that we need to have, uh, be reminded of the things that God has done in our lives. It's very easy for us to continue straight down this path and hurry it along and forget the way that God has blessed us. It's very easy for us to forget the things that God has done for us and to focus on the negative things or the positive things that we think we did for ourselves, etc., etc. So understanding that this is to put us in remembrance and to keep us reminded about these things is very important. The other aspect of this book that I want to make sure we understand is that Peter is going to tell us about how important it is to have spiritual knowledge, to make sure that we know the things that we should, to make sure that we are spiritual in our daily behavior, and to make sure that we are mature believers, that we have grown into who God calls us to be. And I think sometimes we really struggle with this as a, dare I say, Christian culture, if you will, we focus, rightfully so, very heavily on the idea that we would be saved, that we would come to a, a saving uh, knowledge of Jesus Christ, that we would uh, have that moment in life when we pass from death unto life and we have our heart of stone removed and are given a fleshly heart, as the scripture says. But sometimes we fail to really emphasize the fact that after that point, after that point that we are reborn, we then should be growing. And so it brings a very interesting question. God intends for everyone to be saved. What does God intend after that? What does he want you to do after that? Have you grown closer to him? Are you more mature now as a believer spiritually than you were before? Many of us mark these occasions. We have points in our lives and we 
graduate from one grade or one school and move on to another, or we reach a promotion at work, or we reach a certain age, as we mentioned this morning, we celebrate these things. So the question is, spiritually, have you matured? Have you grown? And all of this that Peter is telling us, if you read uh, the rest of this book, and you should at some point this week, you will see that all of this is important, especially in the face of false prophets and false teachers. We have a very serious problem that is not new. People come in among us, even sometimes in our little church, who want to teach us things that are not correct, who want to lead us in ways that we should not go. And you can read the rest of this chapter and see the warnings for that. So Peter is trying to tell us that we need to, have, uh, we need to be growing in our maturity and our spiritual knowledge about God. And we need to be very careful that we are not taken astray by false doctrines or by teachers who are going to tell us and lead us in the wrong way. And so there's my little entry summary of 2 Peter for you. So let's look at verse 1. Simon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. I'm just going to go ahead and give you a warning. I don't think we're going to get past the first three verses this morning. (laughs) There is a lot here, and there is a lot for you to take in. Again, I encourage you repeatedly, slow down when you read this scripture. It's very easy when you become very fluent with it to just pass over, pass over. And sometimes, I'll be honest with you, maybe I'm the only one who likes, you know, doing things quickly and getting to the point. Has anybody ever, like, skipped the opening or, or the ending? There's beauty in this. I'm telling you, there is depth. Hopefully, you'll see it here in a minute. In this, this one little verse, this opening way that Peter writes and sends this letter. First of all, he calls himself Simon Peter, connecting who he was and who he is now. This is the same Peter that was an apostle, same Peter that walked on water and then didn't succeed at it, the same Peter who denied Christ, the same Peter who was rambunctious, zealous, quick to do things. Peter has matured, hasn't he? See, that's the point. Peter went from a a fisherman who, at least when Christ saw him, wasn't very successful. And look at what he's doing now. And this isn't of his own accord, and we'll talk about that and emphasize this. But Peter has become something else. He has matured into a very, very, very powerful testimony of who Jesus Christ is and was and we should seek to do the same. So Peter says, a servant of the apostle, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. By that meaning that he lived and walked and knew Jesus personally. And then he says this. Let me read it in a different translation. Those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. And so he's telling us that he is writing this letter to those who are saved. Now, again, I think sometimes it's very easy to step back from the scripture and say, well, those were those people then. But who is he writing this letter to? A whole bunch of people who are what? Saved, who know the Lord. Who's sitting here today? A whole bunch of people, hopefully most of whom are saved and know the Lord. 
And so we should take this letter very seriously as God inspired Peter to write this. And as it is part and listed in the scriptures for us to know, then we can and should understand that he is telling us the same thing that he was telling the church thousands of years ago. So we should take it very seriously. A couple of things that he points out here. He says that we have this precious faith. What is something that's precious? Well, something that's very valuable. And in fact, the more valuable it becomes, the more precious it becomes to us to the point that it becomes something we can't even measure. You might think, well, what is the most precious thing that you have? Maybe your family. Can't really value, can't put a number on my family. That's how precious they are. That's how valuable they are. That's how important they are. That's how I would do anything that I could to help them. And so when we think about something that's precious, something that's valuable, something that is of great worth, of great use, has great advantage to it, we think about our faith as not just this thing that we have, but something that is very, very, very valuable, something that's very precious, something that's more valuable even than our family, something that's more valuable than a great uh, uh, amount of money, something more valuable than a glass of water when you're Dying of thirst in the desert. Something that is precious, that's valuable, something that you would never, ever give up. Do you feel this way about faith? See, this is why Peter wants to put us into remembrance. Because I would argue that most of us, well, I would say all of us, but most of us can think back to the point at which we were saved and our faith was what? The most precious thing we'd ever experienced. The most valuable experience we'd ever had in our life is that moment we pass from death unto life. And then we go back to living, and what happens? We kind of forget. It kind of almost becomes not as precious and not as valuable. Now, it's not that its value is changing. It's that how we value something changes. And so the real question is, Do you feel this way? Do you feel that your faith is precious? Is it valuable to you? Do you guard it above all else? Do you make sure you never lose it? Do you have something very precious? If it's an object, you're going to keep it tight, aren't you? You're going to hold on to it. You don't want it to get away from you. And we need to remember that our faith is precious, and it should be precious to us. Or we can end up despising it. We talked about this in one evening service recently, about how Jesus Christ despised the shame. In other words, he ignored the shame. We can despise our faith. We can ignore it. And some of us have spent long periods of our time of our life ignoring the faith that we at one point had in Christ. We have forgotten how precious, in fact, it is. And we need to remember. We have obtained a like precious faith. What does that mean? A like precious faith. And we've also obtained it through our Savior, Jesus Christ. So there's two concepts I want to talk about here for a minute. The first of one is we didn't obtain our faith and it's not precious to us because it's something I did. 
It's something that Jesus Christ did for me. And see, this goes to the very root of the problem. Many people in our society, if we're honest, will realize and come to the understanding that there's something not right, that I'm not worshiping like I should, that there's something higher than me. You can go back and listen to the sermon from a few weeks ago. We talked about the power of nature to show us the truth. So we know that there's something wrong. But many people, and unfortunately many faiths, have taught what is a false doctrine that somehow I can work my way there. That somehow I can be good enough to deserve the blessings that God gives. When in reality the the scripture very, very clearly teaches that I am nothing but filthy rags. That there is no, here it is, virtue in me. There's nothing good in me. In fact, there's everything wrong in me. So the idea that somehow I can save myself is completely counterintuitive to Scripture and is not what God tells us. Instead, he says, the precious faith that we have comes through who? Through Jesus Christ, who is the precious one, who is the one who has virtue, who is holy, who is separate, who is sinless. And in that, I have my faith and my hope. Not in myself, not in my ability to be good, because I cannot be good. Even for a few hours, I cannot be good. And so we must remember that this faith we have, which is precious, only comes through our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is not something I deserve. It is not something that I have earned. But there's another very interesting concept in here that I picked up on. It says, a like precious faith. It's very, very easy for us to read the scriptures and put Peter and others up on a pedestal, isn't it? I mean, if I was to ask you, raise your hand if you'd like to be like Peter, you might say, well, at what point in his life? (laughs) Not when he's rounded in the ocean or the, the sea. Maybe when he's walking on the water part, right? Maybe when he's not doubting what Christ said, but when he's willing to do it all. Maybe you'd like to be Peter when he finally gives in and says, fine, wash my feet. But you wouldn't want to be Peter a few hours later when he's denying him outside the palace. But either way, we begin to look at these great men and women in the scriptures that we have tremendous accounts of. And we seem to think, wow, if only I could be like Peter. If only I could be like Moses or Joshua, who I preached on a few weeks ago. Pick any one of the scripture who you admire and say, if I could just be like them. If I could just have what they have. We do. It's the same. We so often forget this and we'll run right over this. It's the same, it's the like, it's the same precious faith that Peter had that I share too. You see, again, this goes together. It wasn't that Peter was so good. It was that Peter followed hard after God's will. And Peter tried and tried and tried and tried to follow after God. And what should we do? Try and try and try to follow after God. We miss the point of all this. And the point of all this is you can't do it on your own. You have to let God do it through you. And the same power, the same faith, the same amazing uh, things that changed Peter from an impatient fisherman to a man who writes part of the scripture 
who was gifted with powers and did things we can only imagine about, all through the power of God, that same faith that worked miracles through him is the same faith that we have through Jesus Christ today in you and in me. And we forget it. We try to do it on our own. We try to force our way in there. What we need is to remember that that precious faith is the same. There wasn't anything more special about Peter than there is about you. He's just as fallen as you are. The difference is he allowed God to work in his life in an amazing way. And God will do the same in yours. There is no different today than there was then. So do we have that same precious faith that Peter had? Did we get it the same way? Yes. Peter had to believe in faith like we do today. Now, he had a little advantage. That's part of why he's an apostle. He got to see Jesus. But because we know so much about Peter, we know that he had his questioning moments too. He had to really come to faith the same way we do. He had to believe. And ultimately, that faith, that like faith, that same faith that he had in Jesus Christ can and will produce the same results. You want to be like Peter? Love God more. You want to walk on water? You want to be like Moses? You want to be like Aaron? Want to be like any of the other apostles? Love God. Let him do the work in your life. Let him, through his precious faith, give you the strength to do these things. So let me read the first verse again. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained a like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. When I could practically sit down there, couldn't I? Here we have a man who's saying, because of his sacrifice and nothing that I did and the faith that I have in him that is so precious to me, I want to guard it with all that I have, we have this in common. And so thousands of years later, we have this in common. And you know what? That's why so many times we feel so at ease with each other and so comfortable here. Why? Because we share the same precious faith. We don't have the same blood relatives. Well, I'll take that back. About a third of the, two-thirds of the church does. (laughs) But the point is, we feel often more at home with our church family sometimes than even our other family. Why is that? Because we share a precious faith. We share a faith that isn't dependent on us. I mean, let's be honest, many of us have lots and lots of friends who, if we stopped acting the way that we currently do, would not be our friends anymore. You have friendships the same way. If someone turned into someone that you don't know now or changed their behavior, you might not want to be friends with them. Something inside them has changed. There's something different. But what's inside of us doesn't change. It allows us to have a communion together with Jesus Christ that is different. In verse 2, we have a benediction. This is kind of a churchy word. We use this on occasion. We even have what we might call a benediction. 
It's simply a, a declarative blessing, if you will, upon people. So sometimes we'll call the closing prayer the, the benediction, and that's rightfully so. And the purpose of that is to say a blessing over those that you are around. And so we have here a benediction by Peter. He says, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I'll pause here and say these benedictions, they come at the beginning and at the end. And it's a valuable uh, effort to study those and to memorize some of them and to use them. There's a benediction that's very famous. For those of you who attend Providence Christian Academy, they say at the end of every day, don't they? It's a blessing meant to bless you as you finish your day. And sometimes we have them as an opening. And so here Peter has given us one. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you. Another translation reads it, May God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. See, there again is a whole sentence that could be a whole sermon in and of itself. Grace and peace, what are we talking about? Grace is unmerited favor. I didn't earn it. If I earned it, it wouldn't be grace. Unmerited favor. God loves me in spite of myself, not because I'm so good. And peace. Well, peace is harder to define in a certain way. But peace is really the absence of fear, the absence of stress, in some ways the absence of need, being at peace. Peace is very important in the Scripture. It's talked about over and over again. And God came to give us peace. Many of us will describe the time that we were saved as that you just had a peace. You're just like, ah, oh, this condemnation that I felt is gone. This worry and this stress over whatever is just gone. I just, I, I just, I just know. And so Peter is giving us a blessing. He said, grace and peace be multiplied unto you. And this is where I tried in not a great way, and I'm going to try again in an even worse way probably to explain. I tried with the children this morning. What does it mean to multiply something to you? Bear with me for just a second. And trust me, I'm not at all the mathematician, so we'll see how this works. Imagine uh, grace and peace came in some kind of unit. Like I had five, five graces. And I added five more. I'd have ten. It goes linear, right? When we think about multiplying... We think about it in an entirely different way. It's actually like multidimensional. And it grows, as I told the children this morning, exponentially, which means it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So if I said I want to have five units of grace and I have five more and I have 10, then I get five more and I have 15 and five more and so forth. But if we multiply it, it works a lot different. So we can picture and imagine to ourselves if I had five units of grace and I get five more, multiplied, I have 25. Well, then I have 25 and I get five more, 125. So now I got 125 units of grace and God's going to multiply it more. Now I got 625. And once I got 625 units of grace and God's going to multiply it by five more, I get 3,125. And I, yes, I wrote this down because I'm not this smart. 
Then you multiply 3,125 by five times, and you get, see, none of y'all are either. It's okay. We get 15,625. Well, a couple of you. But the point is this, when God is talking about multiplying grace and peace to us, we're, we're talking about a big deal. This isn't, I'm just going to add a little, you get like, you know, two points more happy. God is going to change everything about who we are and what we are because he's going to multiply it beyond what we could even imagine. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you. How often do you seek more grace and peace? It's an interesting question, isn't it? How many of you, and I'm raising my hand, how many of you have felt like you don't deserve more grace and peace? Be honest with yourself. Brother Ben, after the week I had last week, I don't deserve any more grace and peace. Well, that's the beauty of it. You're right. You don't deserve any of it. But God wants to give it to you anyway. Isn't that the amazing part? So how often do we ask for it? Sometimes we do, don't we? Sometimes we come up to an event in life. Sometimes we come up to a period of life when we throw our hands up and say, I I can't do this. I have to have help. But you know the secret is we should approach everything in life the same way. I need you to multiply the grace and peace in my life. I need it now because I'm in a hard spot. You know what? God is not upset about that kind of request. That's what he wants to do. He wants to increase these things in your life. Does that mean that whatever the circumstance is will soon be over? Maybe, maybe not. This isn't circumstantial. This is spiritual. It's two different ways of looking at this. Grace and peace be multiplied. Do you deserve more grace and peace? Of course not. Should you ask for it? I think so. I'm going to flip over for just a second to Luke. Luke chapter 12. You see a beautiful reminder here of Jesus himself speaking. He says, Luke 12, verse 28, If then God so clothes, clothes the grass which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven. Very true in Tennessee right now. How much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. And seek not that you shall eat or what you shall drink, neither be doubtful in mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth that you have need of these things. But rather seek Ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. And the most comforting part of all, fear not, O little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Little flock. We've studied this before, but sheep are dumb. More than most animals. And we're a little tiny ragtag flock of sheep. And it is God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. The kingdom. All of it. 
is ours. Why? Because He wants to give it to us. He wants to bless us. He wants to give us peace and grace and mercy. He wants to do these things. It is His good pleasure. He desires to do it. And we just simply oftentimes won't ask. Or sometimes we just entirely reject it. Because we don't think we deserve it. Or we don't think that we need it. But it is God's good pleasure to give us these things. Brothers and sisters, let us pray for others to be lavishly covered with grace and peace. And let us ask for it ourselves. Let us seek it in our daily lives because it is God's good pleasure to give us these things. Well, how do we get them? Now, this verse tells us too, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. He tells us the source of this. It is God and Jesus Christ. It's not our own effort. It's not our own doing. Again, you see the theme that I hope clearly comes out in these passages. How often do we try and get good things our own way? Most of the time. Most of the time. We need to get it from God. Now I want to pause here and do a bit more of a word study because this word becomes more important as we read uh, this book and this chapter specifically, but it's broader, has greater context here. It says, unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. I want to talk about knowledge for a minute. Knowledge, um, it's really sad. We don't, we don't have a great word for what's being presented here in the original language. I am by no means a Greek scholar, but what I do understand about other languages is that there's not always a one-for-one explanation. Uh, Perhaps the greatest example I can give of this is how many different words can you think of about a car or a vehicle or a truck or a pickup or an SUV or a motor? Probably, what, 30, 50 different words for the same thing, right? And sometimes the number of words we have in a language indicates the value of that thing. I've been told that there are some cultures where bananas grow abundantly, that there's like 10 or 12 different words for bananas. But we have one. Because it's just, for us, it's this thing. We have one word for knowledge, but understand that there are several different ideas being expressed here. And it's very, very essential that you understand this when you read the scriptures. So there's a knowledge in the way that we think about knowledge. I know that there's a ceiling. Or I know so-and-so because I met them last week. But other times, the scripture is talking about an intimate knowledge, a deep knowledge. The way that you actually really, and I'll just change the word with voice inflection because it's the only way we have an English language to do it, the way that you know something. You understand what I'm saying? So there's... Mind knowledge and say heart knowledge. And what this scripture is revealing to us, and if you go back and look at the word that's being used here, it's more than just, yeah, I know the scripture. I read it once. Yeah, I I know Jesus. I went to Sunday school when I was a little boy, a little girl. Yeah, I know Jesus because I was in VBS once and repeated a prayer. Yeah, I haven't really done much with him for a few years, but I know who he is. The Bible very specifically when he uses this word, is talking about a knowledge that is deep, that is intimate, and that is experiential, and that we can know God. 
like you might know your best friend or your parent or your spouse or something. Even better than that. That we can know him in the deepest, most intimate possible way. And that is where we get our strength and our grace and our peace from. Knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. That's more than just a mental head knowledge. That's more than just, yeah, I heard this. I've heard the scriptures. It's knowing. Do you know God? We have a phrase. It's been around for a while. I'd say it's probably a southern country tradition. I've said it here before. Do you know that you know that you know? It's the best way I can use to describe this kind of deep knowledge that's going on here. What are we talking about? We're talking about true, actual knowledge of God. Because when you really know somebody, it changes who you are, doesn't it? When you really know God, God will change the very nature of who you are. He'll do it the first time when you're saved. And then hopefully through maturity, as I opened with, you'll grow closer and closer, knowing more and more about him. So it's not just a mental head knowledge, it's a strong knowledge. And in fact, if you go back and look at this, you'll see this change a couple of times in this chapter alone. Peter uses the two different words. Let me just give you an example, in case you've missed this too. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, everyone knows where I'm going with this, right? This is a love chapter. Let's talk about this for just a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8, and I'll try to come to a conclusion here soon. It says, charity or love, it's old English for love, uh, charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Now, this knowledge is talking about a head knowledge or a book knowledge. The things that we think we understand are going to go away. This has already happened, will continue to happen, and will permanently happen at some point as well. You don't believe me? Study a pyramid and tell me how they built them. We don't have that knowledge anymore. And I mean head knowledge. We just don't know. There's no spiritual application. I'm just saying, like, we don't know how that was done. There's other structures on earth that we don't know how the ancients, the older people, did them. We have no idea because we've lost the knowledge. I have a great fear that we're putting everything on our silly computer devices, and at one point when that goes away, then what happens to all of our knowledge? That's why I have boxes of books at my house. I don't want to lose it. There's absolutely value in having knowledge about things to having head knowledge. And so the scripture, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, says that will go away. It'll go away. But then you continue reading. Pick up with verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know, head knowledge, that's the word for head knowledge, now I know in part, but then I shall know heart knowledge, even as I am known. You see, someday, someday, I will get to truly know the way that God knows me. Can you believe that? Have you thought about that? I can know things in my head. And I can know in part through my heart, Jesus Christ. 
I can know that when I was 18 years old, when I was bowing down in a field, that God took my heart and he exchanged it and gave me a new one. But that's only part of the story. The whole story has yet to be told and it will happen when I stand before Jesus Christ and see him face to face. And then shall I know the way that he knows me, which is the most intimate, deepest possible way. He knows me better than I know myself. And someday I'll get to know him the same way. Isn't that amazing? Does that not sound like something that you want? Isn't that better than just saying, well, don't you head knowledge know the Bible's true? No, I know the Bible is true. I know that my God reigns. I know the living God who made everything imperfectly, yes, but I know it more than a simple head knowledge. I know it in here. That's what this is talking about. That's what Peter is trying to tell us in this passage. Grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge, the deep knowledge of God. If you want more grace and peace, you have to know God. Not just know about him, but to actually know him. How do you know something or someone? You spend time with them. You talk with them. You don't just know things about them. You have to know them. So if you want grace and peace multiplied in your life, and you should, then you must know God at the most intimate, deepest level possible. And it goes on in verse 3. According to his divine power, he hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Another translation reads it this way, for his divine power has bestowed on us absolutely everything necessary for a dynamic spiritual life and godliness through true and personal knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. A couple things to note here. First, we get this out of order. And we get really confused about causal things. What causes something to happen? This has been the great question of humankind. And I think it's because God put a little bit of this inside of us. We want to know what causes this. Where did this come from? Where are we going? If I touch this, what happens? If I do that, what happens to this? But we're not always very good at it. Especially when it isn't something that's physical. And especially when it's something that's spiritual. Your life in God must exist before you can grow. You must be saved. You must come to the first time, the saving knowledge of God, where he changes who you are for you to then grow. A child has to breathe before it can cry. A child has to breathe and cry before it can ever walk. And many times in our lives, we are sold a bill of goods either by others God forbid sometimes people from the pulpit and likely by many of our friends and relatives that try and tell us, going back to what we talked about before, that you can like push your own way into this. You can be good enough that God will bless you. No, you have to realize that you are poor enough to need God to begin with. And once and only then can you go into the greater things. We have to know God intimately the first time before we can grow. We cannot grow on our own. 
We cannot obtain life. We cannot be godly unless we first obtain life. We have a real problem with this in our society that comes again from churches. It comes again from everything. It goes both ways. We have arguments. We don't, I'm sorry, we don't have arguments. We have people who present to us all the time, you have a great life. You just add a little bit of Jesus. Now, maybe few would say it that way, but that's how it's presented, right? Go to a lot of churches today. Oh, there's just this little thing. Just, just say this. Give us some ties, you know, a couple times a year. Come on Easter plus a few more times. You are good to go. Add a little bit of Jesus to your life, and you'll have a great life. Y'all know people like that? What about the other way around? Well, if you just add Jesus, everything will be good. It doesn't work either of those ways. And to think otherwise is to think falsely. It is about Jesus Christ and our life in him. End of story. It's not, well, if I add Jesus to my already good life, I'm good to go. And it's not, I have a really bad life, so I'm going to add Jesus and everything gets good. It doesn't work that way either. It's about knowing him and being known by him in the most intimate possible way. End of story. And how do we do that? Well, here we go again, through knowledge. Same word as the verse above. That deep, intimate knowledge of who? Of Jesus Christ because of his glory and virtue. King James doesn't do as well pointing that out, but really what that sentence is saying, knowledge of him that have called us to really should be his glory and virtue. See, it's not mine. I didn't earn it. I don't have it. I can't be good. It's impossible for me. I have to depend on him. I have to go to his virtue, which we'll hopefully talk about next Sunday. His excellent nature, his perfection, his mercy, his grace, his gloriness, because I don't have any of that. And the only way for me to pursue anything in life is to seek him and put him first. And what happens when we do that? Well, God knows what we need physically. Whether we get it or not, or whether we get it or not, that's not the question. The question is spiritually. Where are you at? Have you grown? Do you ask for grace and peace to not only just be added to your life as a little add on at the end, but to be multiplied? Imagine, and this is going to sound silly, imagine if you were like 25% more peaceful. Multiply that again and again and again. Oh, little flock. It pleases the Lord to do these things for you. And yet so often we want to do it on our own. We want to go our own path. We want to somehow think, well, God, why would God give me peace? Why would he give me grace? Look at, look at what I'm doing. Or maybe we think, well, look at what I'm doing. God should give me grace and peace. It doesn't work either way. So, as always, there's two groups of people that I'm talking to. There's those who have experienced the grace of God, who've been saved by His grace, and we need to be reminded that we need to ask for the multiple blessings that He will give us and seek them. And how do we do that? Through knowing personally more about Him. 
And then there's those who are here today who have never known him intimately, personally, the first time. You need to be saved. You need to be rescued from the filth that is your life. You need to be set on the right path. You need to be able to go to God and ask for that peace that you've never fully known. You need to ask for that grace, that unmerited favor that only God can provide. And so as we have a hymn, I want us to sincerely think about where we're at in our lives. What does God want us to do? If you've been saved, what is he telling you to do? Where is he leading you? What does he want of your life? Have you grown into maturity? If not, then you need to ask for grace and peace to do those things. If you've never been saved, then likewise, you need to ask for grace, unmerited favor, and peace, the peace that only God can give to know that you belong to him and to be set on the path to know him. This is the opportunity that we give you today. This is the charge that you have. What are you going to do about it? Let's have a hymn if you don't care.